thoughts about medicines and treatments and uh, the way chemotherapy works is actually prevents cell division. Uh, that's, that's the way it, it functions and cancer cells tend to be the fastest growing and multiplying and doing cell division in your body so chemotherapy works by hitting those. Uh, and so jokingly this week I told Bethann and Darren my sermons may need some chemotherapy because they keep dividing. Um, my original plan was uh, part one last week, part two this week, but as I was getting to the text this week, and this is really kindness to you, um, I realized there's way too much to cover in one sermon in this second section, and, and thus is the fruit of uh, the Lord doing this in, in this shepherd's life while we're working through it. I hope you noticed that I tried to get sunburned yesterday at, at, at lacrosse games so that I would have Moses' glow, because we've been talking about uh, the, shiny, the shiny light. So hopefully this doesn't blind you uh, in, the, in the middle of it this morning. But excited about this text and uh, what certainly God has been teaching me and what I, what I believe he can teach all of us this morning. And so we're going to be back in 2 Corinthians here, chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 13 down through the end of the chapter there in verse 18. Now, I, I will tell you this, I feel compelled to tell you this, this is one of those moments that the chapter division is helpful on one hand, because it does finish off the thought pattern of Paul answering the question from chapter 2, who is sufficient for these things, and all this list of things that we have. We have confidence, we have boldness, and we have this treasure in jars of clay, and we have this ministry, and now we'll have the spirit of faith. And so it does finish off that thought pattern for us, but also, to be very honest with you, it serves as a bridge into the next things he's going to talk about. And it, because he begins to think with a very eternal perspective and communicate with a eternal perspective. And so in that sense, we'll get to verse 18 and it'll almost leave us hanging a little bit because then he's going to start talking about a heavenly body as opposed to this jar of clay that we all live in with all of its brokenness and weakness. And so I just want you to understand that the way the text is laid out, but, but we're going to devote our time and our attention to this last portion of understanding. How is it that any of us, with our brokenness and our weakness and our frailty, how is it that any of us are able to be sufficient for this ministry that God has called us to? We feel very insufficient for that, and, and so we're going to devote our time to that, and so that's why we'll, we'll read from 13, we'll stop at 18, and, and give our attention to that mindset with this text. Paul writing this, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to, to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One of the things that I'm learning is that in Christian culture, this phrase, or this term brokenness, is really used in two different ways, and they're very different, and teasing out or understanding the nuance of that difference is actually really important for us to continue to understand our text this morning. 
Most commonly, brokenness is often used in reference to sinfulness. We might even use a sentence or say something similar to this, God is breaking me over my sin, or God is breaking me over my motives, or God is breaking me over my actions, or even God is breaking me over my sense of self or identity. Nancy Lee DeMoss has actually an excellent book on brokenness that drives at this particular perspective. We might call it sinful brokenness. However, one of the things I'm learning from this text is that's not at all the kind of brokenness that Paul is referencing or talking about. And so I do want to encourage you to think about this nuanced difference for just a second. Brokenness here in our text is about personal weakness, a lack of power. What we might think of as normally would lead to a lack of boldness or, or even suffering. This certainly can be physical in nature. We might think of someone that's physically handicapped or disabled or or even mentally, someone that's mentally handicapped or disabled, emotionally handicapped or disabled. This is really a part of who you are, and it's going to be with you until you get to heaven. You can try to work on it, you could try to fight against it, but they will always be in your life. It's a part of who you are. Paul infers here, actually, and he makes it abundantly clear later, that these weaknesses, this kind of brokenness, is actually a good thing. It's good because it's what God uses to work and shine through us, as we even saw last week. And so we might call this earthly brokenness. Earthly because it's here on earth and it will go away once we get to glory. And so sinful brokenness, brokenness over your sinfulness and things where you need to be sanctified, is ultimately that brokenness in your life and mine is fixed and restored through the redemptive power of Christ. We repent of our sin, we trust Christ, we grow and we change. Maybe God has broken you over your anger or your bitterness or your lust or your resentment or your fear or, or your selfishness. And, and so you've begun to learn to put off and put on, and as Ephesians talks about in sanctification. And so God restores that brokenness through Christ's forgiveness and growth in him. But earthly brokenness, the brokenness that's in this text, this weaknesses, this clay pot living, is not intended to be fixed. It's actually intended to be uncovered so that the light of Christ and the power of God might shine through us while we're here on earth. If the opponent to sinful brokenness is our arrogance and our pride and our blindness to our sin, the opponent to earthly brokenness is our own sense of personal strength. We can think of it maybe in this guy, Moses. As a young man, Moses sees a Jewish slave being abused horrifically by an Egyptian slave master. And so Moses steps in, and you might remember Moses actually beats the man to death. That's not an easy thing to do. It's violent, and it's close quarters. Um, This man's blood and sweat would have been on Moses. As he's killing him, Acts 7 tells us why Moses did it. And Acts 7 tells us that that Moses did this so that the Jews might see that God intended to deliver them through him. Now, I find that fascinating. That tells us that long before Moses ever stood before the burning bush, Moses knew what the mission of his life was, and that was to lead the Jews out of slavery 
to the promised land. He knew that. The difference was, as a man of 40, he should know better by this point. He's been raised in Pharaoh's house. He thinks God's mission, get this now, will be accomplished through his strength. And that's not at all what God intends to use. And so instead, he runs off into the wilderness and he shepherds sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. And now he's an old man. His physical strength is beginning to flee from his body. His respectable strength is beginning to go away. He has white hair, and so he might be looked to for input, but not for power. And honestly, while leading sheep was a great way of him learning how to lead the Jews, we otherwise don't try to find a shepherd to be the next president. We don't think of that naturally as someone who's learned all these leadership skills. And in fact, when God calls Moses at that point and essentially says, now's the time, what does Moses say? God, I don't even speak very well. We don't know what kind of speech impediment that he had. Uh, We often assume that it's stuttering, but, but we don't know that it's stuttering. It could have been any number of things. But now Moses is weak, and now is the time that God wants to use him. God always intended to lead his people to the promised land through Moses, just not in his strength, It had to be in his exposed weaknesses. So as Moses stood before Pharaoh, what they saw was God's power, not Moses' power. And so when we think about this kind of earthly brokenness, it begins to humble us because it begins to help us to realize that it's only as our weaknesses are revealed, it's only as brokenness is made evident in our heart and in our life and even toward others that the greatest effect will take place. And so the theme of this week would be this truth. Our brokenness must not silence us because we have the spirit of faith in the new covenant. Moses thought his brokenness should silence him. God, I can't speak and I can't do it. This moment with Moses is so you and me. There's an inherent shame that comes with the revealing of our brokenness that we talked about last week. We want to hide away from our weaknesses. We want to deny them to others, if not to ourselves. We want to view our weaknesses and our broken areas as that which holds us back instead of that which is most important for God to use. Paul resists this temptation, and he pushes forward, and he says, No, I will not be silenced. I will speak, even in the midst of my revealed weakness and brokenness. And so with that in mind, we want to think first about speaking when others won't. The most common reality is when someone feels weak or they know that they're broken is that they they get very quiet. They don't have much to say. I don't have many answers for this moment. I don't have much to add to this conversation. I don't know what I would say about this situation. And so when we think about it, we, we realize that our world doesn't like broken things. It's very uncomfortable with brokenness. The whole theme of Toy Story 3 is about broken and discarded toys that have been cast off. And, and so you mingle sympathy and irritation with them and you, you see the evidences of their own arrogance and rule and their seizing of power because they've been discarded. Or you might even think of that old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, Christmas special, right, with the island of misfit toys. One dolly who's missing her nose and, and the whole whole emphasis of that is what's broken about them should be as apparent as the nose on your face. She's missing her nose. And, and so our, our culture has this idea that when something's broken or wrong or deformed, to shove it away, to send it away. This is why there were so many decades of sanatoriums. Long before abortion was prevalent, if your child was born with a disability, 
whether it was an obvious visible disability or a disability maybe mentally or, or, or educationally that was revealed over time, the answer was to what? Put them away from us. And the argument was we need to put them where they can be cared for, and yet now we know that in large, these sanatoriums were nothing less than warehouses waiting for people to die. Even the Kennedys had a daughter who was less than perfect mentally, and so she was shoved away, never talked about, ignored, and pushed into sanatorium. I don't know if you know this, but John F. Kennedy was leading the charge for mental health advocacy in the United States because of his own sister and what she'd experienced. Our culture is not comfortable with broken things. We want to get rid of them, and we all inherently know this. And so we start to experience the shame of this kind of brokenness and weakness in our own life. And so Paul does something very interesting right here in verse uh, 13. He quotes from the Old Testament. It's almost like Paul's saying, there's a voice from the past, and here's a voice from the present. He says it this way, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. And what Paul is doing, he's actually quoting from Psalm 116, verse 10. And in Psalm 116, it's called a Hillel Psalm, uh, and it's called, actually called an Egyptian Hillel Psalm. And so we're basing it off of history as best we can understand it. But Hillel songs were songs of praise. They were also called songs of ascent because when they would march up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem sits up on a hill, and so they would literally go up. So whether they were traveling from north to south, east to west, it didn't matter. They talked about going up. And so when they talk about coming out of Egypt, and this is a little bit easier for our Western minds, if we think about a map, Egypt, if you leave Egypt, you go up to the promised land. You're actually traveling north, right? So I'm going up. And so they had these praise songs. And so this was kind of an Egyptian Hillel or a song that they would say that maybe even the Jews sang as they were marching through the wilderness, as they were fleeing out of Egypt. And what's fascinating about it, though, is it's a song all about misery and affliction. It's a song all about your suffering. At one point, the psalmist in this Hallel song cries out for God's mercy. Why do you need to cry out for God's mercy? Well, if you're anything like me, anything like the people in the Bible, you cry out for mercy when you realize you've done something that maybe deserves justice and his judgment. This man's suffering and, and in his afflictions, he's wondering, is this because I've done wrong? Because we all know that none of us are perfect. And we know that what we sow, we shall reap. And, and we know that God punishes sin. And even as his children here, he will discipline and chasten us. And so there's a question in our heart, was well, this suffering deserved? And if I deserve this kind of suffering, and if I deserve this kind of affliction, do I really have a right to ask God to deliver me from it? And so the psalmist at one point cries for mercy from God in the middle of this Hillel psalm. Uh, he feels close to death, he talks about. He talks about the chains of death, and he talks about Sheol, their understanding of hell. He, he's, he, he feels like he get, got to where he got because of bad decisions. We know that because at one point he calls himself simple. It means naive. Have you ever experienced a breaking moment in life? In other words, a revealing of who you are. And you've thought, if I had only not done this, this, and this then I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. This is the way this guy feels. And so we begin to feel the encroaching shame, someone who's done wrong that maybe deserves this affliction and this weakness in their life, someone who's made bad decisions and has resulted here, maybe they're not even sinful decisions, but naive decisions, and they are where they are, someone that feels like physically they're about to die, someone who can't stop crying because of what they're experiencing. 
These are all the marks of someone that the last thing they're going to do is speak or teach, to preach or to praise publicly. And yet the psalmist says, I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. That's the way our ESV renders it. Just so you, you know, the grammar there literally means I speak because I believe in spite of my affliction. What Paul is doing is he quotes the psalm and he tells us this is now the truth that he believes. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. And by using the plural there of we, he's drawing us into that same sentiment. In other words, he's saying this, the foundation for our praise is not our current feelings or circumstance. It's what I know to be true, regardless of how I feel. I'm refusing to be controlled by how shameful I feel over my weakness. Our common tendency is to be silent. Paul says he refuses to do so. Why? Well, there's a silence of brokenness for a number of reasons. It's the shame of it. We talked about that a lot last week. But also because of things like self-pity. You hurt. And we want to be honest here. It, it hurts to be weak. It it hurts to be different. It hurts to realize that it feels like and it seems like other people are more whole than you are. It hurts to feel like everybody sees where you don't have it together. And in that moment, it's, it's easy to go down this very dark well of of basically just self-pitying you. It's easy to go down a well to think about how hard you have it or how unfair life feels or how much you are hurting and all you want is comfort. The last thing you want to do is to open your mouth or, or get in your car or, or come to church or praise God and talk about him because all you really want is someone to comfort you. Because you hurt so bad. It silences us because we wrestle with fear of man. We are afraid of how people will judge us and perceive us if we're honest about our weaknesses, our failures, and our faults. These broken areas in our lives. Maybe, maybe it's more acute because our tendency is to judge others. Maybe we've looked at other people and their brokenness. We've judged them with the same words that the psalmist is using about his own heart. And we've looked upon someone that's very broken. And, and we, we've, we've said, you know what? Well, they were naive. They got to where they got because of what they, decisions they've made. Sorry you're broken, but it's your own fault that you're there. What an astounding lack of empathy and care and love. And so in the moment then when our brokenness happens, because, because maybe we have that kind of mindset with other people, we're afraid people are going to view us that way. We're afraid people are going to judge us. And so the last thing we're going to do is be honest about how broken we feel. And so out of fear of man, we're silent. And we slap on the plastic smile and act like everything's fine when everything is simply not okay. Maybe sometimes we're silent because we're tired. The last thing we want to do is more ministry when we feel broken. The last thing we want to do is be kind to others, loving God and loving others. It takes everything we have just not to stay in bed all day 
or just be consumed with ourselves or entertainment. We feel too tired to speak. It silences us because we know that other people are uncomfortable with our brokenness and our weakness. I had one spell a number of years ago. Some of you remember this. I broke my femur, fractured over here at the YMCA. And so I was in a wheelchair for a little bit before I ended up on crutches. And I remember very vividly one time going to the mall, and I'm in this wheelchair and um, trying to get around. And we were in a store, and we're trying to talk to a sales associate. And it was, I don't remember, it was shoes for me or something for me. And they wouldn't even look at me because I'm in a wheelchair. They look over me, wouldn't talk to me, or speaking directly. And it's like, it's about me. It's like I'm not even there. There's been studies done this way. And, and so it's interesting because it's been almost 15 years ago. And I made the decision then, any time I pass someone that's handicapped or disabled, obviously, physically, I endeavor to speak to them. Because I want them to know their humanity and that I see them and I acknowledge them. Because we're that uncomfortable with brokenness in our culture, we don't know how to do that. And we don't want to do that. And so sometimes we know other people are going to be uncomfortable with how weak they are. And so my own heart is incredibly tempted to not be raw or honest or open or transparent with you about how weak I know I really am or how broken I see that God is revealing that I am. Because I know, for some of you, that will make you very uncomfortable. Because that's not the kind of shepherd you want, maybe. I don't like have a list. I just know that that's the reality of the way people respond. And so maybe you face that. It's been hard for you to be honest and open about where you're weak or broken or fragile because you know it's going to make other people uncomfortable. But again, the psalmist refuses to be silenced. He cries of God's faithfulness, as Psalm 116 continues. He cries of God's mercy, of God's truthfulness, of God's blessings. He cries of the freedom that he has in God. He makes his worship public. And so I think it's interesting because it's a Hillel psalm. It really became a song the whole congregation would sing together. It's essentially saying, we are broken, we are afflicted, we we don't know how we got here or why we are who we are, but that doesn't matter, I'm going to praise God anyway, and we're going to do it together. There's actually uniting power when you gather together people that are all broken. The real problem was people to refuse to admit it or to be honest about it. And so Paul identifies with the psalmist who refuses to be silent. And so the question is, how does he do it, though? That, that all sounds good, and, and it sounds like something we should do, but how do you get there? How do you move from the shame, and how do you move from the temptations to be silent to actually speaking? Well, I would put it this way. I think you have to see before you speak. Paul says, uh, again in verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we spoke. And so it's a belief issue. It's almost like when you're a Christian soldier and you're in combat, it's, it feels actually very similar to what the soldiers faced in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, the vast majority of soldiers never saw the enemy because the jungle was too thick. They'd be going down a trail, and all of a sudden, AK-47 rounds would start piercing through the jungle. You're hearing the zip and the whine of the rounds as you go near you. Your teammates and, and your rifle uh, company mates are dying around you. Guys are getting hit. Shrapnel's going off. And all you see is green. 
You don't even see the muzzle flashes frequently, certainly not if it was during the daytime. And so you're diving for cover, but the the enemy was just as skilled as we are. And so if there was a ditch next to the road, you knew not to jump in the ditch, because if you jumped in the ditch, typically they'd already wired that with explosives. So your best answer was to do exactly what was counterintuitive. Stay right where you're at, get your rifle to your shoulder, and start returning fire to any direction you think the enemy is shooting at you from. It's terrifying. The vast majority never, ever, ever saw the enemy. They never saw the enemy until after the combat effect, the firefight, and they might find bodies. Even if it was a moving encounter where your soldiers are making their way and your lead element, the guy walking point, runs into the point of their other guy, they might be the only two that ever see each other, and they just start opening fire. Well, if you fast forward to today, what difference would it have made if they had had night vision, thermal goggles and scopes? They would have pierced through the fog and the darkness to enable them to see the real enemy and to know where to shoot back. Can I, can I say this to you this way? Weakness and brokenness is like a fog that descends on your mind and your heart. It's like the darkest of night that you can't see through. And you don't know where to fire back. And it's debilitating. And, and the cry that you would hear the most in combat is, where are they? Where's the enemy? And it's not until somebody can point you in the right direction that you can even return fire that's going to save your life and the lives of your friends. And so this is what Paul is saying. In our weaknesses and in our brokennesses, it's like the darkness has descended on our very soul. And suddenly God, who has called us to be ambassadors for him, and has told us to tell of his love and of his joy that we have in him, who has called us to share the gospel with the lost and with our friends and our neighbors and our family, suddenly because the darkness is so profound. And so what Paul says, there is something, there is a view, a perspective, there are lenses we put on that helps us to pierce through the darkness so that we might see what is really going on. And he calls it the spirit of faith. Because don't we understand that faith is belief in seeing the unseeable? And one day we'll get to glory. And faith will be made sight. I was thinking about this week as, you know, they're doing all this construction around us. That makes it happy. Summer's going to be fun driving on 26, right? Um, Everybody headed to the beach. We're just trying to get to the grocery store. And so it was massive backup, just crazy backup. And I'm driving in the backup. And it's always a little frustrating, right? And um, I'm not a happy driver anyhow. (laughs) You know, those are all sanctifying moments for me. And, and I'm like, what is the backup? I don't even think they're doing construction. And we get up there, and a dude is changing his tire. And it's like everybody's got to get their 45-second view. And I feel like saying, like, we've all changed the tire. There ain't nothing to see here, folks. There ain't nothing special, right? Keep it moving. Well, do you think there might be a backup when we get to heaven? I don't know. Just my holy, right, fun imagination. Because when I get to those pearly gates, and my faith has finally become sight, I'm going to want my 45 seconds. So y'all just going to need to be patient if you're behind me. And so how do we press forward before then? And so Paul says, I have the spirit of faith. Because we're in the new covenant, because Jesus has saved us, we know these truths. We actually have it far better than the psalmist had it. He had hopes and, and he had promises and he had seen faithfulness of God in the past. But we, we know that the answer was in Jesus. 
And so Paul says, these are the lenses that I put on, and so that I must see before I can ever speak. And there's a couple of reasons this is really important. First of all, if you've seen the text there, spirit there is little s, small s. The word throughout the New Testament used for spirit is pneuma, um, and so you might have spirit gifts and pneumatikos, and uh, you've pneumat spirit. And so there's always a contextual question, what spirit are we talking about here? Is it, is it your inner man or is it the Holy Spirit? The translators here, frankly, are unsure, and so they throw small s in here. But we ask, what does it mean then to have spirit of faith? And what we know from the rest of the New Testament is that it's the gift of God. This is really important. I'm going to tie this in for you in a minute. But the faith, the goggles, the lenses we put on to see through the darkness so that we might speak when we are weak is actually God's gift to you. That's important because it means it's not something that you have to work up. And the last thing people who are in darkness need is to give them an insurmountable job to do. And so Paul points to something that God gifts to us. We see it in a number of texts in the New Testament. I'm going to give you several. But we see it very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so everybody wants to ask, what is the gift there? We get down to it is the gift of God. Well, not to overload us linguistically here, but it's neuter. It is the neuter. And so the neuter then points back, guess what, to everything that preceded it. It doesn't just point back to one or the other. It points all of it. So it's pointing to grace, faith, and salvation. It's all God's gift. Where does your faith to believe come from? Well, I was just inherently born with it, and I worked it up, and then one day I figured out that I believed. Uh-uh. God gave it to you. He gave you grace. He gave you faith, and through that, he gave you salvation. It's not just there, though. You can see it in Galatians 5, 5, if you want to write this down. Galatians 5, 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Even earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote it this way, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Faith is a gift from God. This is important because, as I said, in the midst of brokenness, you don't need to work up more faith for this moment. You have all the faith you need because you've been saved. How does Jesus even put it? It's faith is a grain of mustard seed. He doesn't talk about you needing more faith. He talks about purifying your faith and strengthening your faith. And so faith in this moment, and this is really important, because when you're weak and you're like, I don't know how, I don't know how, Paul is telling you you have all the truth and the belief in Christ that you need to press forward in the midst of this darkness. And so it's the gift of God. But it's also important because Paul could have pointed to a number of things. You see, contrary to us, Paul's faith at times had been sight. He had had a vision of Jesus. Jesus specifically had discipled him in the desert for three years. We know later in Corinthians, Paul had even had a vision of heaven. And so we would look at Paul, and it would be easy for us to say, well, Paul, it would be much easier for me to press on through my weaknesses and through my brokenness, through my realizations that I'm not nearly as strong as I thought I was, through my, the revelation that I'm not nearly as confident as I thought I was, 
through the revelation, I'm not nearly as bold as I thought I was. Through the revelation, I don't have as many answers as I thought I did. Well, Paul, it's easy for you because you actually saw Jesus. And if I had seen Jesus, I'd be as bold as you are too, Paul. And so it's helpful that Paul doesn't point to any of those things. He points again to the faith of salvation. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is for all your sake. So this grace extends to more and more people. May increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He doesn't point to his vision or trained by Jesus or even his vision of heaven. He points to the reality of the new covenant, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul sets his sight in the midst of his broken suffering on the truth that we all believe that leads to our salvation. That Jesus Christ came, was born of a virgin, he lived a perfect sinless life, and for 33 years he walked this earth, never once sinning, and then he laid down his own life of his own accord. No man took it from him at a time of his own choosing, and he was crucified on a cross for us, and he died, and they put him in a tomb, and darkness descended on this planet. And then three days later, the tomb was gloriously opened, and Christ is resurrected, he walks out of that grave, he, he ascends to heaven, he comes back and, and he walks this earth again for some 40 days ministering and speaking truth and comforting and, and guiding and instructing and empowering. And even now, the resurrected Christ is at the right hand of the Father, intending to welcome his saints home, petitioning the Father on our behalf making intercession in the midst of our weaknesses. And one day we will walk into heaven and he will say, enter in, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of my Father. We put our faith and our hope in the resurrection. We don't need a special vision of heaven. We don't need a particular dream, Paul is saying. You don't need to be discipled personally by Jesus on the backside of the desert. What you and I need, the night vision thermal goggles we need to see through the darkness of our brokenness so that we might speak praise to his name is if you believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. Do you believe is what he's saying. I find immense hope in that truth. He's telling me that all the power that you or I need in this midst of our brokenness is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God has given me all that I need to please him, to know him, to serve him. In the middle of this season, when you feel so frail, when you feel so broken, when you feel so acquainted, you're much more acquainted with what you can't do than you ever have been with what you can do. Then in the midst of that season, he's given you the same power that raised Christ from the grave. Paul then points to one other truth here, and it's of contrasting value. So Paul says he plans on keeping on, keeping on with the mission God gave him, just like the psalmist said, in spite of my affliction, I speak because I believe. Paul says the same thing for me. In spite of my weaknesses and in spite of my brokennesses, and, and to remind us, the Corinthians looked at Paul's weaknesses and brokenness and said, you're a low down, sorry, no good apostle. 
And Paul is saying, you ain't going to shut me up with the truth about my brokenness. You don't preach so well. Paul's like, I know, I'm going to keep on preaching. You don't talk so well. You don't look so well. Um, You're in it for you. No, I'm not in it for me, but I'm going to keep traveling. I'm going to keep proclaiming. I'm going to keep praising. There's a persistence in Paul in the midst of this that even though they're pointing out his brokenness and Paul lives in the reality of his brokenness, he refuses to be silent about the power of Christ because Paul spoke from belief, not from condition. Paul spoke because affliction didn't change his belief. It actually provided contrasting value. Your brokenness, my brokenness, your weaknesses, my weaknesses, our weaknesses, they don't diminish the value of the message, they enhance it. Uh, the other night, we had some friends over and they had some beef ribs, so we smoked those beef ribs, right? Before you smoke beef ribs, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little lesson here because it's important. Before you smoke them beef ribs, you've got you to cut off the excess fat. You've got to peel back the fat membrane on the back of those ribs. If you don't do that, you're not going to get any flavor in it. And then I'm going to tell you what to do. Get yourself some Traeger coffee rub. That's what you need. About $10, Amazon, it'll do you right. It ain't going to do you wrong, it'll do you right. You take that rub, and, and before that, you put mustard all over the beef. You're like, mustard? Why would you put mustard on the beef? You ain't going to taste it. Don't worry about it. Calm down. Cool your shorts. You put mustard on there because it makes the rub adhere to the beef. Don't use no EVOO. I don't care what Rachel Ray says. You want to put, put some mustard on there. Then you rub. You have to rub it. If you don't like rubbing the, the meat, then you get yourself some gloves. Harbor Freight. They got them cheap. Rub that rub in there, and then you got to let it sit all night. And you know what it does once you smoke that meat? It's slap your mama good because the flavor has been enhanced. Your weakness doesn't diminish the message. It enhances it. So why are you so bent on hiding how weak you are? Because in that moment, it isn't about the message to you anymore. It's about how you look. And Paul's point is, it enhances it because it gives contrasting value. What I mean by that? Well, the gospel, it's built on contrasting value, right? He says a man, a rich merchant, finds a pearl that is like his dream come true, so he sells everything with joy so he can buy that pearl. A man finds a treasure hidden in the field, so he sells everything with joy that he might have that treasure hidden in the field. When you come to Jesus in salvation, you don't, nobody, <laughs> you don't come kicking and screaming, despite what the old preachers used to say. Because Jesus said, when you see the value, it's so contrasted with everything else you built your life on that you come with joy to Jesus because he's rescued you. And so when you see Jesus talk about the gospel and he says, I'm better, he even puts it in language like this, right? He says, you have to love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, or children, You look at that and you're like, what? Because there's a power in the contrasting value. So pearl, treasure, love, and affection, there's contrasting value. When we see the gospel put in contrasting value, we understand our weaknesses, enhance it, and make it more powerful. 
So when Job is afflicted, the one who thought you follow God when everything's going well is Satan. But God knew that's not why Job followed him. And so God said, okay, then have at it. So Satan takes his, his kids, he takes his money, he takes his wife because she's like, curse God and die. She abandons him emotionally in that moment. She abandons him with physical presence because when he goes out to the ash heap, she's not even there comforting him. It takes these three lousy friends to show up, friends. Uh, I don't know, Facebook friends, something friends. They weren't friends, but they got to show up. Friend, frenemies, that's what they are, frenemies. Frenemies show up and they got to comfort him. He loses it all. And what does Job say? Though he slay me. His brokenness showed the value of what he's following. I will not abandon God, though you take everything from me. And so when we see contrasting value, the message when it comes through broken people is enhanced. Leith Anderson, a Christian historian, theologian, interviewed a, a young girl or a lady at this point. She had grown up as a little girl in the Congo Republic, and she was there when they celebrated the 100th anniversary of missionary presence in the Congo Republic. Speeches were given, and music was played, and at the end of the day, a very, very old man stood before the crowd to speak, and he told this story. He said, when the missionaries first came to the Congo Republic, uh, the, the, the tribal natives, they thought that the message was weird. The message was suspicious, and frankly, these white people were very, very odd. And so they didn't trust them, they didn't like them. And so the tribal leaders got together, the chiefs, and they decided to test the missionaries. And so they slowly started putting poisoning in their food. And over a period of months, and even years, the ones that were most vulnerable in the mission fa missionary families all died. It was their children. And the tribe watched as all the children of the missionaries died, one by one. And then slowly, wives and husbands, mothers and fathers began to succumb to the same poisoning. And they watched as they died, and yet the missionaries would never leave. They stayed, and they proclaimed the gospel even as they died. And this old man said this, it was as we watched how they died, that we decided we wanted to live like Christians too. Death leads to life. Isn't that what Paul said? This death in me, that it might be life in you. Your value as an ambassador for the glory of Christ is not diminished, but enhanced by your brokenness. As Moses stood before Pharaoh as an 80-year-old man, the strength was the power of God and not his own power. The deliverance was from God's miraculous intervention and not young Moses in his anger. Persistence in proclaiming the glorious truth of Christ in the midst of brokenness makes the truth clearer, the message more powerful, and the glory more beautiful because it says this to others, he is worth more than my comfort, he is worth more than my reputation. He is worth more than my wholeness. He is worth more than my strength. Our brokenness must not silence us because we have the spirit of faith in the new covenant. Now, this is why there's going to be two parts of the sermon. All that does is lead into four core truths. 
And so you'll get one this morning, and we'll unpack the other three next week. Paul lays these out in order. And really what he's saying, it's almost like when you read verses 7 through 12, it's what Paul wants them to think about others who are broken. And when you read 13 through 18, it's more about what Paul thinks about his own heart as he's in the midst of brokenness. And so the very first one is this, ministry out of brokenness grows wider. Now the message has been enhanced, but now he says it gets bigger. He said in verse 12, it's death in us, but, but life in you. But here in verse 15, he, he puts it even franker. He says, it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's perception is that as he ministers out of brokenness, and as it's obvious that the ministry is out of brokenness, the, the, the message, the beef ribs of the gospel has been enhanced because people see less of Paul and more of Jesus. And then Paul is saying, and it's almost like when Jesus fed the 5,000 and he keeps spreading it and spreading it and spreading it. It's, it's like the oil for the widow uh, where, where there was only one pitcher, but she kept pouring it and pouring it and pouring it till the famine is over. Uh, it's like the expansion of the message happens through broken people. Do you know what the American church needs? you know what the global church needs? It doesn't need more celebrity pastors or whole people. It doesn't need more popular people. It doesn't need more beautiful people. It needs the broken people to speak up. That the message might grow forward. I immediately think of our missionaries, Jonathan and Sarah Farmer, with a daughter with a heart condition and a Down syndrome little boy with also his own heart condition. And that's who God plucks up and sends to Indonesia to reach a people that have never heard the gospel before? (laughs) Frankly, now you read through 2 Corinthians 4 and you're like, of course he does. Obviously. And so he should. Paul says it interesting because he says it is all for your sake. And and so when he says there, it is all for your sake, he is saying it's all things. Therefore, therefore, listen now, the weaknesses and brokenness of our life enhances and broadens the influence of all of my ministry is what Paul's saying. Because the way it's read here is it's for all the things that I have said for your sake. And so all of his teaching, all of his preaching, all of his discipling, all of his ministry, all of it has been enhanced by brokenness. Not just the message about brokenness, but all of it. There's a validity to the entirety of the Christian message when it comes through a broken vessel because more of Christ is seen. Empathy grows in the person who is broken and is revealed in their weaknesses because they know how important compassionate care is to receive and to give to others. Truth in hard seasons and situations is made easier to swallow because it comes from a broken life. When you know that someone else has suffered, when they tell you truth you need to work through when you're suffering, you're a little bit more prone to listen because you're like, they've been there. My wife recently observed this. Not not too many people are going to argue about the gospel with a woman in her 40s uh, mother of three fighting a cancer that you're not supposed to get to you're in your 60s like people are pretty prone to sit there and just listen 
whether they believe or not, it broadens, it widens influence. It's funny because I, I spent time with my brother-in-law, one of my brother-in-laws this week, and he made this comment to me as he has shared with his clients and, and neighbors about what God is doing in his sister's life. Uh, the natural question starts to come up, well, how is she doing? And uh, we're praying for her and what's going on. And he said this to me. He said, if my sister has the courage to capitalize on her cancer, to point to the gospel, how can I do less when clients, neighbors, and friends ask me about her? So suddenly, the weaknesses and the brokennesses in her life is reaching people with the gospel that we will never see and we will never meet because there's a willingness to be honest about how hard life is but how good God is. Brokenness widens the impact of all the ministry God wants to do through you. And so, I just want to give you practically then, how do you do that? How does that happen? And I, and I just want to remind you then, it's great because we study through the Bible, you know, comprehensively, just verse by verse. And so we already know that it's this, it's faithfulness over fruitfulness. God may never give you some worldwide audience. You may never become a viral blogger or or a testimony or video on YouTube that shows up and gets a million views or even a hundred views. And so how can you think about the widening of the ministry? Because Paul is making it very clear, it's us. He, he says things like, we speak and we do this. And I see that God's going to widen ministry. So you're wanting to know, how can God widen my ministry? And what's my role in that in the midst of my brokenness? And so I'll give you three very practical ways that you can do. Number one, own it. <laughs> own it. Own the weaknesses of your life and stop trying to mask. You afraid to speak to people? own it. Say, normally I don't do well speaking to others, but I have something really, really important I want to share with you. You don't feel like you have the answers to someone's struggles or problems? Own it. I don't think I have answers here, but, but maybe here's a text of scripture or a few texts, or even, I don't even have any text. I don't even know what scripture to point you to here. I, I just got to tell you, I want to hear you, and I want to love you, and I want to be with you in the midst of your, of your suffering. But listen, I'm a broke person, and I ain't got all the answers for your struggles, but can I just listen and pray with you and remind you that you aren't alone? You don't feel like you can do much? Own it. I'm not sure how I can serve you. But, but I will do this. I'm going to pray consistently for you. And I'm going to check in with you so I know how to keep on praying for you. Own your weaknesses. Own the fact you don't have the answers. Own the fact that you don't feel very strong and that you're not strong. Own the reality that you feel a sense of shame about speaking out because of your own past or condition. Own it. And stop trying to hide it as though somehow thicker paint and plaster of Paris is the answer to our brokenness when the real answer is the glory of Christ coming out of us. Secondarily, testify. Paul made it clear that we are to comfort others with the comfort we have received. Testify of God's kindness to you. Testify to others of God's comfort for you and God's meeting of your needs. The one who has a story to tell of God giving bread and fish because they had none. Oh, Father, would you give me bread and fish? And then God gives you bread and fish instead of serpents and gravel. He's the exact one who needs to own that God gave them bread and fish. But here's why we don't want to do that. We have to admit that we were in need and we had lack 
before we can ever tell of how God provided. So the problem is if we always have to hide how we were in need and how we were in lack, guess what you do? You never get to testify of how he provided. Testify of what God is doing and has done in your life. And then thirdly, respond. Paul responds with the spirit of faith. And so he walks in obedience. Can I just call you to respond to your weakness with obedience in the next right thing? Respond by refusing to think of these areas of brokennesses, brokenness and weakness as things to fix, but as part of your earthly reality that God knows about and wants to use. Respond with understanding that Jesus loves you deeply. Jesus knows you fully, and he still loves you deeply. Respond with grace that says in these cracks and holes and breaks that Jesus can be shown through them. It's a good prayer to say, God, I can't do this today. I'm going to need you to show up. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get through today. I don't know how to function here. Jesus, I'm going to take the next right step, and that's picking up this phone and making this call. It's, that's driving out here and having this visit. That's going over talking to my neighbor over the fence. That's going to work. And I'm a, God, I'm just going to do the next right thing. Sufficient for the day are the evils thereof. God, I feel so very weak. I am so very weak. Oh, Jesus, would you shine through me? You know, we have to live in the reality that our, our culture shoves away the weak and broken things. At the same time, we're astoundingly fascinated by them. So we're fascinated sometimes by Paralympics. You know, we're fascinated by uh, motivational speakers who don't have arms and legs. We're fascinated in, and TLC gives TV shows to little people. They're not a, they don't have a TV show without being a little person. And so it's weird because we have a culture that either wants to hide away the broken things or be entertained by them. And nobody likes to be a source of pity or entertainment. And I don't either. It's one thing my wife and I have said to each other frequently over the last several months is we, is sympathy is wonderful. Empathy is golden. Pity is offensive. It's not love. And so if there's been one temptation to be quiet, it's because we don't want pity. But if you're going to be open and honest and vulnerable, you're going to get some reactions you don't like. And so the only thing that will push you through it is seeing the eternal light of the glory of Christ is worth it all. And so will you covenant in your weaknesses to not be silent, but to speak? Father, we thank you for how kind you deal with us. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace and your empowering. Father, would you help us? We feel very frail because we are frail. We feel very broken because we are broken. We feel very weak because we are weak. 
Help us be like the psalmist and Paul here who puts on these, these goggles of the spirit of faith to pierce through the darkness, to see your glory, so we might share your glory. Father, would you continue to use our brokenness to help us to know and to show Jesus Christ more. And we pray this together in his holy name and all God's people said, amen.